Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest will be Bill White, who is the author of Slaying the Dragon, A History of Addiction Treatments in the United States. And our second guest will be Dr. Ron Siegel, who has written The Mindfulness Solution. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. If you want more information, you can also go to hamsnetwork.org book. Our first guest tonight is Bill White, who is the author of Slaying the Dragon, and we're going to bring him on right now. Bill, how are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm just fine, Kenneth. Nice to be with you. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show. Well, tell me a little bit about your background. Um, were you an addictions counselor before you wrote this book? Um, actually, I was. And, and before that, I, I've worked in the addictions field uh, full-time since 1969. I began as what was then called a street worker. Today, we would probably refer to them as one of these indigenous outreach workers, uh, within, a, within a few years, I uh, worked as an addiction counselor. Um, the casualty rate was very high, so it didn't take long to be a clinical director and then a program director. And then over the years, I've got involved in research and writing in lots of different areas within the field. Well, I've got your book here. I've been reading it. It's a very fascinating book. Uh, for those of you listening out there, it's a very huge book, and it's very uh, comprehensive if you're going to talk about the history of addictions treatment, this is probably the first place to go to. I would suggest it very strongly if you're interested in that topic. And I'm going to ask you a little bit about some of the things you talk about in the book. Um, sure. The disease theory. is Where did the disease theory come from? I think probably a lot of people think that's a recent idea, but it's, it's older than that, isn't it? Yes, it's actually, it's actually quite old. Um, if we if we look at it in terms of uh, the first people that really articulated a kind of disease concept of addiction or inebriety as it was then called, we're probably going back into the to the 1790s in the writings of uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush. He's really the first person that began to sort of talk about this notion that that uh, chronic drunkenness was a medical disorder, not a moral disorder and uh, challenged physicians to treat it and called for the creation of special institutions to treat it. Um, and so by, by 1811, he was one of the leading advocates for the development of a system of addiction treatment in the United States. Now, having said that, he also killed a lot of alcoholics by the methods he used to treat in those days, which were purging and bleeding and, and uh, also an interesting idea of uh, substituting um, opium for alcohol because he thought it would uh, render the drunkard less socially obnoxious and, if, and it was also less physically destructive. So he may also be one of the first harm reduction advocates as well. Well, that is an interesting, uh, interesting point of view because uh, people today are talking about uh, marijuana substitution for alcohol and saying it's, if for some people at least, because it doesn't cause liver damage, it can be safer and various aspects, so he was uh, ahead of his time in that way. Um, did uh, Benjamin Rush, Dr. Benjamin Rush, did he have uh, a lot of credentials to back him up? Well, uh, credentials only in the sense that he was, uh, he was a prominent physician. He was the first Surgeon General of the United States, uh, signer of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, so he brought a lot of not only medical, but also a lot of moral authority to these kind of declarations. He, he was sort of the, 
the driving force behind uh, what's going to emerge as the 19th century uh, temperance movement. So very powerful figure within this history. Well, that brings us right into the temperance movement. Tell me a little bit about the temperance movement, how it got started, uh, what it did. Well, it's interesting in light of our conversation so far, because the temperance movement in some cases also really, their primary focus was on harm reduction. The early stages of that movement uh, was not a a prohibitionist movement. Uh, They were not focused on total abstinence. They were really trying to reduce the problem of drunkenness. And they really had two strategies. One was to reduce the volume of alcohol consumed by encouraging people to moderate their use. And the other one was to get people to switch from distilled alcohol to the use of fermented alcoholic beverages, particularly wines and beers. Uh, And and that really kind of dominated the early temperance movement uh, up until uh, we see about 1825 to 1850 we begin to get a transition and a sort of a radicalization of that movement, um, which is going to shift from moderation to a focus on total abstinence and also um, sort of abandoning this idea that we could reform drunkards and uh, began to really focus much more on a a branch of that movement on the the legal prohibition of alcohol. Well, I do see um, these days that research seems to tell us some people can be successful at switching, you know, away from hard alcohol uh, into uh, wine or beer. And it doesn't work for everyone. Some people are better off with total absence. So they do seem to also be forerunning some ideas that are current today. Yeah, there's, you know, we've got a growing body of evidence that says that uh, we, we really have two very different populations of alcohol problems. And one of those is the problems we see in the broader community and the majority of people there are going to resolve those problems uh, without professional assistance, without recovery mutual aid, and many of them will do so uh, by, by decelerating their alcohol use or changing the pattern of use, whereas when we get into clinical settings where we see much, much higher problem severity and much lower recovery capital, uh, there we tend to see abstinence as a more preferred method out of the collective experience of, of people you know, with with problems that severe. So it really is a function of apples and oranges in terms of a lot of these comparisons around issues of problem severity. Now, I think we're all uh, in the audience familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous and the idea of a mutual aid group for uh, people with alcohol problems. Mm-hmm. But this, this wasn't the first uh, mutual aid society for uh, people with alcohol problems, was it? No, not not by any means. There were actually dozens of pre-AA recovery mutual aid societies. These date from the the 1730s. We begin to see uh, within Native American tribes the emergence of these abstinence-based re- uh, re- religious and cultural revitalization movements and group meetings referred to as recovery circles uh, that were used for, for mutual support. Uh, for people to both abandon alcohol and abandon a lot of the European folkways that came with that. And then as we move forward, we see the Washingtonians, a very large recovery movement of the 1840s. We see the Fraternal Temperance Societies, the Ribbon Reform Clubs. And then as we began to get treatment emerging in the mid-1900s, we also saw a significant numbers of mutual aid organizations created inside treatment organizations that then moved from the treatment organizations into the community and became sort of self-sustained recovery support groups. And, the, and that, that those groups are, are going to continue, those, those experiments, uh, all of the way into 1935 with the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. So A was by no means the first of these. The Washingtonians was quite large. Can you tell us some more about them? Yeah, it's actually pretty fascinating. It was founded, you know, in April of 1840. There were six men who were part of a drinker's club at the Chase Tavern in Baltimore uh, who got into an argument one night um, about issues related to the temperance movement. And before you knew it, they had uh, William Mitchell, one of their members, made a proposal that they should start their own temperance society. 
but only for hard cases. And, of course, the term alcoholism hasn't been coined yet, so hard cases was what would later be referred to as alcoholic. So they met the next morning and organized the Washingtonian Temperance Society, and it grew from those six men to more than 400,000 members within within the next 48 months and then virtually disintegrated within the, the, the years immediately following that. So the, the, we've had lots of, of, of recovery mutual aid societies started. The trick is, the, is how they survive over time. And, and AA was one of the groups that sort of found a, some secret ways to be able to pull off the things that had self-destructed all their predecessors. What do you think are some of the differences between AA and, say, the Washingtonians or the other groups that has made AA survive? Yeah, I don't think it's, you know, a lot of people, when they think of AA, they think of AA's 12 steps. And, and I'm not sure it's so much the steps that distinguishes AA, because we get in the earlier groups things like mutual support. We get things of what would be referred to as 12-step work, this kind of mentorship, you know, model sponsor-sponsee relationship, we find that in earlier groups. Um, we find um, there are parallels to, the, to parts of the 12 steps that we find in earlier groups. What we don't have is anything that's the equivalent of AA's 12 traditions. So if you look at the traditions of AA, they were organized really to sort of govern AA as an organization. It sort of reined in issues of religious and political ideological debates, issues related to money, issues related to personality and ego, uh, issues related to affiliation with outside organizations. And, and once those got reined in, we, we actually had, the, had an organization that was able to survive over time, not, not only because it had a viable structure, for many people to sustain recovery over time, but also because they prevented the organization from self-destructing around these issues. I think uh, another of the traditions that might come to bear is uh, anonymity at the level of uh, media, press, uh, radio. Uh, well, the Washingtonians were quite public, weren't they? Uh, they were very public. Um, in, in fact, uh, one of the thing, one of the downfalls of the movement was that you had people began to, you know, sort of publicly. Uh, it's hard to describe this if you could go back to the 1840s, but these were these were almost like community theater. Uh, large, large numbers of people would come in and watch these sort of confessional tales of people describing their descent into drunkenness and and their. The, this transformational experience of signing the pledge and joining the Washingtonians. And as men began to compete with it, with one another, they began, you know, more and more exaggeration of the addiction stories and more exaggeration around their transformation stories. And as some of those individuals relapsed who were very publicly affiliated with the Washingtonians, it began to really damage the reputation of that movement. Um. And uh, also, well, were there arguments about uh, the temperance issue, about the prohibition issue? That's what I want to ask. Yeah, when, when, when AA takes the position and other 12-step programs have taken the position that they have no opinion on outside issues, it's almost a kind of direct derivative from the horrific kind of debates that occurred in earlier groups around questions like, should alcohol be legally prohibited? And, and those very divisive issues uh, virtually tore some of those groups apart that preceded AA. Today we have a lot of uh, rehab programs, but uh, were there rehab programs before AA came into existence? Uh, yes, a large number, actually. We, we see the beginning of treatment um, in, in what we would call sort of social model programs or recovery home type settings as early as the 1850s, uh, growing out of the Washingtonian movement in Boston. Um, we, so we see, we see early inebriate homes, which are these small homes where people stayed at for a short period of time voluntarily uh, and then linked themselves with one of these early recovery fellowships. And then in 1864, we had the opening of the first medically-directed 
addiction treatment facility in the United States in Binghamton, New York, uh, the New York State Inebriate Asylum. And that grew then into a network of inebriate asylums around the United States, uh, many of them state-sponsored. And then we had a third area, which were private for-profit addiction cure institutes, uh, the Keeley Institute probably being the largest chain of those with more than 120 franchise Keeley Institutes around the United States and Europe. And then the fourth category we had for treatment were bottled and boxed home cures for the alcohol, tobacco, uh, and, and drug habits, uh, most of which uh, actually were secretly containing uh, not only alcohol but uh, cannabis and cocaine uh, and opium and morphine in particular. Tell me a little bit more about the early inebriate, inebriate asylums. Well, they were quite different than the, the homes that I referenced. The, ineb the inebriate asylums were medically directed. They usually had uh, what today we would refer to almost as an addiction medicine specialist uh, who headed the facility. Um, they, they, they involved long lengths of stay, um, most of them a year or more. Uh, many of them uh, were, had lobbied their states to produce the first legal commitment laws for inebriety. So people were legally committed to these institutions. The treatment methods were primarily detoxification, sometimes with all kinds of exotic methods. And then they used a lot of physical treatments to sort of physically rebuild the body on the understanding that then the body would be able to resist this what they later would conceptualize as this high risk of relapse. Um, and so they were able to, to, to sober people up, um, create an environment for them, um, sort of build them up physically, uh, uh, mentally, and, and, and morally. There was this sort of moral education theme within that as well. And then, and then release people to go back to their communities as cured. So there was a big psychosocial co component as well. They did have a psychosocial component, but it was pretty mild. They really did emphasize these physical methods of treatment, these sort of exotic uh, detox protocol, uh, ongoing, all these kind of vitamin therapies, sunlight therapy, hydrotherapies. And the idea was that there was almost this sort of underlying physical pathology and this, this focused physical care would allow people to, to recover from this condition. Were any of these organizations affiliated with religious groups? You know, very, there, were, there were very few of the inebriate asylums that were, but there were a large number of the, of the inebriate homes, these smaller facilities, that were, that were affiliated with some of the religious institutions in the country. And in some cases, linked themselves uh, particularly after the 1870s, to the growing number of urban missions who had begun to cater um, a special message of, of care and support for the, the, the urban uh, uh, sort of skid row alcoholic. What kind of funding did these uh, organizations have? Yeah, it was really different because the inebriate homes were for the most part either self-supported or supported by sort of uh, community philanthropy, or in some cases religious philanthropy, for those that were associated with some faith-based institution, the private uh, inebriate asylum, the, the inebriate asylums, both charged fees and also uh, many of them had state uh, support, and, and some of that support came uh, from the early um, lobbies to tax alcohol on the basis that the alcohol industry should pay for the casualties that come out of that industry. So they actually allocated a portion of alcohol taxes in the 1850s and 60s in some of these communities to go towards the treatment of alcoholism. And then the private addiction cure institutes, they, they really catered to an upper class uh, affluent population that, that pretty much paid with cash for their treatment. Okay, tell me a little bit about the Keeley Institute and the double chloride of gold cure. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the most notorious treatments of the 19th and, and well into the 20th century. Uh, Leslie Keeley was a, a Civil War physician 
who got interested in alcoholism based on his perception of the degree of drunkenness in, among soldiers in the Civil War. When he came home, he began to experiment with the treatment of inebriety and announced in 1879 that alcoholism was a disease and he could cure it. And his cure for it was the double bichloride of gold cure for inebriety. And he opened the first Keeley Institute in Dwight, Illinois, and people would come from around the country to go through the, what was then called the Keeley Cure. And the Keeley Cure consisted of hypodermic, <clears throat> hypodermic injections every day and these liquid tonics that you would take about four times a day in between the injections. And uh, you would stay there for the most part around, around a 30-day, around a month's stay. And while you were there, you would participate in a recovery support group called the Keeley Leagues. And then you would, you would go through a graduation ceremony at the end of your discharge and return home uh, and participate in your local Keeley League meetings. And so these became quite famous. There were, you know, very affluent people, many people from the arts that went and got their cure and, and wrote in glowing terms about having gone to Dwight for the Keeley cure. Well, it seems as though um, we don't know if the, uh, the hypodermic injections had any effect at all, but it seems that the groups might have been helpful in keeping uh, some people absent. Yeah, it's really interesting because there was great controversy around what was in this secret double bichloride of gold cure. And we have pretty good evidence that the formula actually changed multiple times. But we're pretty sure it included stimulants such as atropine, uh, belladonna, included uh, different times probably small amounts of strychnine, uh, which was commonly used as a stimulant in some medications during that era. Um, but in spite of all the controversies around the medication and charges that the medicine were fraud, what nobody could argue with was the fact that significant numbers of people came out of Keeley and maintained their sobriety afterwards. And Keeley would have these big alumni meetings which, where people would come back for years and years to celebrate their, their, their recovery anniversaries, if you will, with their families. So nobody could really challenge this idea that there were some a large number of very public people who claimed they owed their sobriety to the Keeley Institutes. And some of us, as we look back on that, really think that the, the magic of Keeley had more to do with this recovery supportive milieu than anything related to the medications that were being used. Now, uh all of these uh, support uh, systems, the rehabs, the groups, they seem to have largely disappeared. Um, what happened? Yeah, if you look at the end of, um, the, we had this sort of large network of, of early addiction to treatment programs that seemed to flourish in the last quarter of the 19th century and virtually disintegrated um, within the first 20 years of the, uh, of the 20th century. And if you look at the factors that led to that, there are a lot of internal factors. Um, those branches I described spent all of their time fighting with one another. Uh, there was a very weak scientific foundation to what they were doing. Uh, there were ethical abuses in the industry that began to get exposed as you got into the 1890s. But I think probably more than anything within the field was, uh, was a growing sense um, from the culture itself that just lost faith in the prospects of recovery for the most severe problems of drunkenness, and particularly the public inebriate, which had become a significant problem at the end of the 19th century. And so I think what the culture has basically decided was let's let the existing alcoholics die off. And, and sort of in parentheses was, and the sooner the better. And, the, and we're going to prevent a new generation of alcoholics by legally prohibiting alcohol and also by, uh, by, by aggressively controlling the distribution of opium, morphine, cocaine, chloral hydrate, and the newly released barbiturates at that point. So this is really the beginning of this very intense sort of era of legal prohibition. 
and we're going to go through serial prohibitions in terms of multiple drugs. Uh, and, and, and behind that, you're going to get a virtual collapse of addiction treatment for all except the most affluent Americans by the time we get to, say, 1925. Well, it seems, uh, yes, from your book, it seems like the early prohibition laws, and there were state prohibition laws that preceded the national prohibition law in that, uh, exactly, 19, yes. 1920. They seem to have really reduced alcohol consumption and reduced the number of inebriate-seeking treatment. I got that from your book. Is that correct? Yes, that that, <clears throat> that is correct. So at least early on, prohibition did reduce consumption a great deal. The question is, uh, later when organized crime began the major distribution, it might have actually you know gone back to the same levels, if not more. Yeah, even with national prohibition, the people that have researched this the closest, I don't think there's arguments from from any reputable historians that that the alcohol-related problems really declined in the early 1920s. But as we get up into the 20 into the 20s, particularly by 1927 and 28, we begin to see the 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 the, the rise of alcohol-related problems. As alcohol availability begins to dramatically rise as this illicit alcohol distribution system gets in place, and of course all of the peripheral problems that prohibition created that nobody had anticipated. So by the time we get to 1929 and 1930, 31, there's really growing disillusionment uh, with national prohibition as, an, as a social experiment. And now we come up to uh, 1935. We have uh, almost no uh, treatment or rehabs in place, and we have a large number of people with gigantic alcohol problems. You know, we do. 1935 is a pivotal year, not only in terms of the founding of AA as sort of the beginning of what's going to emerge as a modern alcoholism movement and the treatment resources that are going to come in addition to AA. But you also have the federal government uh, being, in some ways, overwhelmed with their prison populations filling up with drug addicts. So we have the opening of the first specialized facility, first specialized prison for drug addicts in Lexington, Kentucky, in 35, and then a second facility in Fort Worth in 38. And, and of course, those settings are going to become a hub for a kind of cauldron that will create experiments out of which will will birth Narcotics Anonymous. And then we're going to get sort of the the evolution of drug treatments that will flow out of the Lexington and Fort Worth experiments. And and those modalities that are going to come sort of peripheral to AA and peripheral to NA in Lexington really set the stage for the birth of modern treatment in the 1960s and 1970s. Okay, we have about three minutes left on this segment, um, so there's not a lot to do, but you tell us a little bit about the birth of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous from the Oxford Group, and then we're going to move on to our next segment. Yeah, the, 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 the birth of AA is just is a, a very difficult story to tell briefly, but the, <laughs> yeah. the sort of catalytic moment is probably this meeting between two individuals who had both tried, you know, multiple efforts to to initiate. And what they, I, I think, one of the messages in the founding of AA that did make it somewhat unique is the predecessors of AA had focused on the idea of how do you get people to stop drinking. And I think the magic of AA was that they began to look at people and bring people together into fellowship who'd stopped drinking many, many times and promised to stop drinking many, many times. And what they figured out is the issue is not how to stop drinking. The issue is how not to start drinking. And what, what emerged out of that was people coming together and experimenting with how to build a lifestyle in which alcohol had no place. And what are the frameworks you can put in place personally and socially that allow you to live a life without alcohol? And, and they did that. And then in, in 39, look back in retrospect and say, you know, we've got people for whom this has really been successful. How did we do this? And the answer to that, you know, it's sort of in reflection was the, the codification of the 12 steps of AA. Okay. 
Thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Bill White. I'm going to bring our second guest on. Great. Thank you, Kenneth. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hello, Ron. Are you there? Yes, I am. Welcome to the show. This is Dr. Ronald Siegel. He is the author of The Mindfulness Solution, uh, Everyday Practices for Everyday Problems. And it's great to have you on the show tonight. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, tell, tell us, in a nutshell, what is mindfulness? What is the difference between mindfulness and transcendental meditation, Zen Buddhism? What, what is? Give me a little definition. Okay. Well, mindfulness is a. It's actually an attitude toward experience. It's an attitude toward whatever is happening. Uh, in our lives, uh, but as we're using it in the Western psychology field these days, and it has um, gotten a great deal of uh, attention from <coughs> Western psychological researchers and psychotherapists for its capacity to uh, change and improve our experience of things, uh, <coughs> what mindfulness involves is being aware of our present experience with acceptance. And that sounds like, well, that's pretty easy to be aware of my present experience with acceptance. But what we find is that if we take some time to examine the usual workings of our mind, most of the time we're not all that aware of our present experience with acceptance. Rather, uh, our minds are busily involved thinking about the past, imagining about the future, and often resisting in some way whatever's going on right now, just kind of complaining a little bit, saying, oh, I wish this would be a little bit more this way or a little bit more uh, more that way. And it turns out that this natural tendency of our minds contributes a great deal to our unhappiness and that one can cultivate this attitude of mindfulness uh, and uh, reverse that and make whatever our life circumstances be much more rewarding, much more fulfilling, um, and uh, leave us happier. Well... I guess you were saying in your book in, in the beginning that uh, these things about always looking ahead to the future, always uh, dwelling on the past, these actually have some survival value, and that's why we have them. Is it that true? Yeah, no, they have that. They have a tremendous amount of survival value. If if, uh, if we were to imagine one of our ancestors uh, take, uh, say, Lucy, she was uh, a skeleton of an ancestor who's our communal great 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 etc. grandmother. And she was wandering around the African savanna about three and a half or four million years ago. And if we could imagine her coming face to face, say, with a lion, what tools did she have at her disposal? Well, she could grit her teeth, but that probably wouldn't be terribly effective. She could show her claws. That also wouldn't work. Her hide was really pretty pathetic. Our skin doesn't offer a great deal of protection. Her fur, even less useful, you know, a few tufts here and there. She wouldn't be able to outrun the lion, or for that matter, almost any other animal. I've, I've uh, actually spent some time doing uh, walking safaris in the African savanna, and the first thing the guide will point out is that all of the other animals, the dangerous ones, are much faster than we are. You know, that lumbering hippopotamus, 38 miles an hour. That uh, half-blind rhino, 42 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So she couldn't outrun them. She really didn't have much at her uh, disposal. Her eyesight wasn't so great. It wasn't bad, but not great. Sense of smell, much worse than uh, than most other animals. So what did she have? She had the ability to pick things up with a hand that has thousands of nerve endings and what's called a prehensile thumb, the way our thumb can uh, grab objects to make tools. And the other thing that she had was her ability to think, to analyze experiences, to think about what has happened in the past, and surmise from that how to optimize her future, how to keep herself safe, how to uh, get food, how to get shelter, all of that kind of thing. So it turned out that in order to survive, this was the faculty that she relied on most heavily, and in fact it's what most separates humans from other animals. And uh, our brains are actually now about three times larger than even Lucy's brain were because this is, this is the aspect of being human which um, which is most important for our survival. So it's no accident that our minds are always wandering, always thinking, and frankly, always wondering about what might go wrong. So it's a survival it's a survival trait, but it sometimes gets in the way of actually living life and being happy. 
Yeah, it, it's it's good for survival, but bad for well-being. Is 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 how this comes down. And uh, it's interesting because we evolved to survive. You know, those of our ancestors who were thinking happy thoughts and weren't always lost in in worries about the future or concerns about the past, they actually weren't our ancestors. Those hominids, they all died off before uh, reaching an age when they could reproduce. Our ancestors were the ones who were fretting all the time, and they passed that tendency on to us. But it is okay to stop fretting when the saber-toothed tiger is not at the door. Well, exactly. And and the the reality of the situation is most of the time our fretting is unnecessary. We're a lot like, uh, well, Mark Twain put it very nicely uh, toward the end of his life. He said, I'm an old man now. I've lived a long and difficult life filled with so many misfortunes, most of which never happened. <laughs> and that, you know, that's that. Mm-hmm. That's pretty. That's pretty much our our plight. Yeah, oftentimes our fretting can just can actually get in the way of our accomplishing what we want to accomplish. So if if we could find some way to quiet the mind a little bit, we could actually make more progress towards the goals that we wanted to achieve. Right. And you and, mentioned earlier that your, your earlier question, which I didn't quite address, which was how mindfulness or mindfulness practices uh, compare to say. <clears throat> Uh, transcendental meditation or Zen practice. <clears throat> and these are all somewhat different ways of accomplishing similar ends. Um, transcendental meditation is what we call a concentration practice. It's designed to focus the mind on a single object. In the case of TM, it's a mantra. Some of your listeners may have um, been given a mantra years ago or more recently if they practice TM. Uh, and uh, the idea is to develop sufficient concentration so that we can really be absorbed in our moment-to-moment experience. Mindfulness practices are a little different than that. They develop concentration similarly in order to uh, pay attention to what's happening in the moment, but they have as their ultimate goal really observing the mind's antics, watching how the mind creates suffering for itself, watching, for example, how it creates worries and uh, perseverates about worries about things that really don't matter, um, and all of the other ways that we make ourselves unhappy, worrying about what other people are going to think of us, worrying about comparing ourselves to others, all of these kinds of things. So mindfulness practices really are about learning to watch the mind as it goes through life so that we can see how it creates suffering for itself, and by seeing that, we can choose other pathways so that we don't create uh, so much suffering. Zen, I mean, just very briefly, Zen tradition is uh, uses as one of its practices, they use mindfulness practice. So you could think of mindfulness practices as, as one of the tools in the Zen tradition. Okay, I'm going to hark back to one of our earlier shows just for a minute. Uh, we interviewed Dr. Andrew Newberg, who has uh, done brain scans of people that do uh, meditations with mantras and has studied the changes in their brains and found very interesting things that go on, not only in short-term changes while they are meditating, but long-term changes in the brain as well. So some of you might want to check out that earlier episode or his, or one of uh, Andrew Newberg's books. Now, uh, I'm going to ask you, what are some of the mindfulness practices you talk about in your book? Well, the simplest ones involve simply bringing our attention to the present. Because the mind is uh, has such a strong propensity to rush off into worries or anticipations of what's going to come next or to go backwards in time and review endlessly things that have happened in the past, uh, it takes some training to bring the mind into the present. And the simplest way to do this is to uh, there, well, there are two basic forms of this uh, that we can call formal and informal practice. And to understand the difference between the two of them, it's useful to think of an analogy with um, with developing physical fitness. If you want to develop a little bit of physical fitness but didn't have a lot of time and energy to devote to the pra- to doing that, you could simply take the stairs instead of the elevator, perhaps bicycle somewhere instead of drive, make small adjustments in your life that would develop some fitness but wouldn't require putting aside extra time. And the equivalent to that are what we call informal mindfulness practices. And they're things like 
uh, when walking from place to place, bringing one's attention to the sensations of the feet touching the ground, the sights and sounds of nature, just what's going on on the level of sensory experience as we walk. Or, for example, taking a shower. A shower is a potentially very rich sensual experience. I and mean, if you think about it, we're uh, where most of us live in the developed world where we can adjust the temperature to be just so, you know, not too warm, not too cold. There are thousands of droplets that caress our probably naked body. You know, we we use some kind of soap. It probably has a fragrance. It may, be, may even be called something like Jasmine Zen, you know. And uh, this is a moment, uh, it's a very intense sensual experience. And yet many of us can spend the entire time in the shower just going over our to-do list. Uh, In fact, I've taken showers and gotten to the end and thought, you know, did I wash my hair or was that yesterday? (laughs) So simply deciding that when I take a shower, I'm going to bring my attention to the moment-to-moment experience of the water, the soap, the smells, and each time my mind wanders, bring it back to that. That's a form of informal mindfulness practice because it doesn't take any extra time. We're showering anyway, but it trains the mind bit by bit to be in the present. If, of course, we wanted to, to use the physical fitness analogy some more, if you wanted to become even more fit, well, then you'd want to take some time out of your day to go to the gym uh, or go on a bike ride or take a hike or do something to um, uh, to develop greater fitness. And there are analogies, too, in terms of mindfulness practices, and that's what we what's there in this realm is what we call formal practice or what most people refer to as meditation practice. And that means taking some time out of the day, maybe 15 minutes, maybe 20, maybe half an hour, maybe even more, to just develop awareness of present experience with acceptance. And the easiest way to do this, the most common, is to find a comfortable posture, and usually with the spine more or less erect so that we can feel kind of dignified and and solid, and just bring the attention to the sensations of the breath and the body. What will happen over a short period of time is the mind will begin to wander, but then we remind ourselves to bring the attention back to the present, and we come back to these sensations of the breath over and over again. In the course of doing this, thoughts are going to enter the mind, and when we notice that our attention has gotten hijacked by a chain of narrative thought, we can bring it back to the present again. And uh, that's one example of formal practice. There are actually hundreds and hundreds of different forms of this. And one of the things that I discuss in the Mindfulness Solution book are the various ways that we might choose one or another practice for one or another state of mind, whether we're feeling anxious or sleepy or uh, or down or uh, in pain or all sorts of other things. So uh, does this include counting the breaths? Yes, counting the breath is is one of the methods and that actually comes out of the Zen tradition, and it's one of the methods that's used uh, when the mind is more frisky. So that if we find that the mind is uh, jumping about quite a bit and uh, it's difficult to stay with the experience of the breath uh, for very long, then counting the breath can help. And there are different ways to do this. You can count um, you can count the in breaths or count the out breaths. Or uh, you can even make a game of it. Um, some people like to decide, okay, I'm going to try to count the breaths till I get up to 100 breaths. But here's the rule. If I find that my mind has wandered off and left the breath completely, well, then I'm going to uh, uh, have to start counting over it uh, at one again. And, uh, you know, we can see through that practice that, well, you know, we don't go too far before our mind wanders off and we have to start again. Most people don't actually make it to 100. Okay, you have a chapter here called Befriending Fear, Working with Worry and Anxiety. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, this is an interesting area. This is an area where ancient uh, Buddhist understandings of uh, of fear and anxiety happen to map very well or match very well modern Western psychological understandings of of these issues. When we think of anxiety or fear, It actually has three components to it. Uh, There's the uh, physiological component, which is the way in which there's adrenaline flowing through the veins and our heart rate picks up, our respiration picks up, our muscles get tense and the like. There's the cognitive component to it, which is all of the worried thoughts we have about what's going to happen next. 
And then there's the behavioral component to it. This usually involves the things we avoid because we're afraid of them. So that if I, for instance, have a lot of anxiety about flying, I might avoid going into airplanes to avoid feeling the anxiety. Now, what both the ancient Buddhist teachings and modern Western psychological understandings have in common is realizing that when we start organizing our lives in order to avoid feeling anxious, we tend to lock ourselves into anxiety disorders. So that, as I mentioned, the person who's afraid of flying, if they start to avoid airplanes, well, that's not going to help them get over their fear of flying. And mm-hmm. um, this, you know, they'll get locked into a fear of flying. And the same thing's true for public speaking, for taking tests, for any one of many, many different activities that a person can become afraid of and start to avoid. The alternative is to face the fear and to do that which we're afraid to do. And here's where the mindfulness practices come in. Because when the fear arises, it's actually just a set of sensations in the body along with thoughts in the mind and perhaps images as well. So that if I'm afraid of flying and I step onto an airplane, my heart rate picks up, my respiration picks up, my muscles get tense. Thoughts of perhaps the plane crashing come into my mind or perhaps thoughts of being stuck on the plane and feeling panicky and not being able to leave come to mind. And so those there are the thoughts. And if we're in if we've gotten ourselves stuck in a pattern of of phobia around flying, then we're avoiding the plane. But a, a solution to this is to go into the plane and use mindfulness practice to increase our capacity to just feel the experience of being anxious. Because it turns out that when we step out of the thought stream, out of the constant narrative about what's going to happen next, and just bring our attention to the sensations of anxiety, to the heart racing and the breath increasing, we discover that we can actually handle those sensations. We can bear them. They're not as bad as we tend to anticipate they'll be. And by practicing mindfulness uh, and doing formal mindfulness practice at other times, then when we bring ourselves to this situation, let's say the airplane, <clears throat> we've we've got practice. We're used to being with these sensations, and we don't spiral off into a lot of fear of fear. We don't start to panic because we're starting to feel anxiety. Rather, we just stay with it as a moment-to-moment experience. And usually what people find is it comes, it goes, it comes, it goes. And uh, once they survive that a few times, then then the whole uh, the whole difficulty starts to fall away. And the same kind of practice can be used with countless fears, whether, you know, things like, again, public speaking, uh, uh, fears of going over bridges, people have so many things they're frightened of, uh, fears of parties, uh, fears of having job interviews, whatever it might be. Well, this is very useful information because so many people that have problems with alcohol are using the alcohol to deal with uh, fears and anxieties, and we encourage them to find some alternate coping mechanism, and this sounds like an excellent alternative for people to learn about. And another thing that people uh, with drinking problems have difficulty with often is depression or sadness, and that's uh, also a chapter in your book called Entering the Dark Places, Seeing Sadness and Depression in a New Light, and tell me a little bit more about that. Well, it's interesting. Um Some of this has to do with the difference between sadness and depression. I often, I I do a lot of teaching of psychotherapists uh, around the country and other countries as well, and I'll often ask groups of psychotherapists to say something about what they think the difference is between sadness and depression. And initially people will say things like, oh, well, sadness doesn't last as long as depression or depression is more debilitating, but Actually, it turns out that sometimes sadness can be short-lived. Sometimes it's long-lived. Sometimes depression is short-lived. Sometimes it's long-lived. Sometimes either of those could be intense or not so intense. The real difference between the two is that when we feel sad, we feel alive. We usually know what we're sad about, not always, but usually, and there's a kind of poignancy to it, a kind of um, aliveness or even tenderness uh, to the sadness, whereas when we're feeling depressed, we feel kind of dead. Um, there's not a lot of life, not a lot of interest in things, not a lot of insight usually into what's going on and what's what's bringing up the feeling. Now, mindfulness practices, interestingly, by bringing our attention back over and over to exactly what's happening in the mind and the body, 
they help to sensitize us to what's going on in depression. So that while depression involves kind of shutting down and moving away from experience, trying not to feel stuff, mindfulness practice is about moving toward it and allowing ourselves to feel what's going on. And just as with anxiety, by practicing this in meditation, we develop the capacity to be with feelings, including painful feelings. By practicing this when we're feeling depressed, we discover that we can be, we can identify the underlying feelings and stay with and experience those underlying feelings. And that tends to transform the depression. The depression tends to transform to whatever the other emotion is. It might be fear. It might be anger. It might be sadness. It might be a combination of things. But it helps us to be much more alive and therefore much less stuck in the kind of deadening effects of depression. Okay, I'm going to move on to uh, ask about your next chapter here, Beyond Managing Symptoms, Transforming Pain and Stress-Related Medical Problems. Well, this is, a, this is a topic which is very interesting to me because I've spent much of the last, oh, 25 years uh, working as a clinical psychologist treating primarily, not exclusively, but primarily uh, chronic back pain, chronic neck pain, uh, gastrointestinal distress, headaches, these kinds of uh, stress-related medical problems. And it turns out that all stress-related medical problems have something in common. What they have in common is that the person's attempts to try to make the pain or discomfort go away often magnify the problem. Uh, in the case of most chronic back pain, it turns out, and this is a kind of a bigger topic than we'll have time for, but it turns out that most chronic back pain isn't actually caused by structural damage to uh, to the skeleton, but is actually caused by chronic uh, tension. And uh, many of us have stress in our lives, many of us have um, have tension in our lives, and this tension over time can make the muscles in the back become very tender and uh, and even go into spasm. Now, most folks' reaction to that naturally is to think that they must be injured and then to go and start protecting the back. So they start to cut down on activity and they might not lift things as freely or bend as freely or... Um, or move as freely, and then the back becomes actually weaker, it becomes stiffer, it becomes um, more constricted in its movement, becomes more vulnerable to actual injuries. So here's a situation in which the thing that we're doing to try to make ourselves feel better, in this case restricting activity in the hopes that the back will get better, actually makes matters worse. Uh, and the and the same is true for a lot of other uh, stress-related disorders where, for instance, people who have a lot of gastrointestinal distress will start to um, restrict what foods they'll eat. They'll experiment and remove this, that, and the other food from their diet, and then they'll become anxious whenever they start to eat a given food. So what happens is when we start restricting our lives, then when we move up against our restriction and try to do the thing that we've been avoiding, we become anxious and that anxiety brings on the symptom because it turns out that most stress-related medical problems are actually anxiety problems. They're made worse by being frightened of them. So here's where mindfulness practice comes in. What happens in mindfulness practice is we can practice being aware of our present experience with acceptance. And in the case of these stress-related or what we call psychophysiological disorders, what that means is just being with the sensations of the symptom, just feeling what they feel like. And when all the thoughts come into the mind, all the worries about it, in the case of the back, you know, oh, I hope my back doesn't go out again. I hope I won't be disabled. I hope it won't ruin my vacation, all those kinds of thoughts. When those thoughts come into the mind, we simply observe the thoughts coming and going, but bring our attention back to the moment-to-moment sensations. And we become better at feeling the sensations and better at not reacting to the sensations with so much fear and so much resistance. This, this is actually part of a, a, a bigger picture as to why mindfulness practices are helpful for treating so many things. It's because so many of our difficulties come from our natural tendency to want to make discomfort go away. Whether that discomfort is anxiety, or that discomfort is depression, or that discomfort is physical pain, the things we do to try to make it go away often lock us into the pattern. So when we do this, then um, do the muscles in the back actually relax more and uh, it feels less uh, painful? 
Yeah, that's that's ultimately what happens, and it, it's kind of paradoxical because we have to go into it not knowing what that that will happen for sure, and just with the attitude of okay, I'm no longer going to start restricting my I'm not going I'm no longer going to continue restricting my life so much to try to make the pain go away. Instead, I'm going to try to live my life as fully as possible. Also pay attention to my emotions because my emotions can play a role in this. You know, if there's something else upsetting us, that can uh, cause us to tense up as well. Uh, but live fully and use mindfulness practices to work with the pain that comes up and to work with whatever difficult emotions might come up. Then what happens is when we're no longer fighting it and trying to get the pain to go away, it tends to go away by itself. That's fascinating. I'm going to move on uh, to your next chapter here, Living the Full Catastrophe Mindfulness for Romance, Parenting, and Other Intimate Relationships. Well, um, uh, it's a little hard to summarize that in just a few minutes, but uh, one of the things that mindfulness practices do is they help us to observe the ways in which our minds react to different circumstances. And much of what goes on, much of what goes wrong in intimate relationships has to do with automatically reacting to things instead of taking a moment to examine our reaction and consider what would be the best course of action. So if my wife says or does something that triggers an angry response on my part, if I just immediately respond with uh, with harsh words, that's not going to do well. That won't bode well for our relationship. Similarly, in parenting, you know, we all know that it's necessary to provide love and limits for children, but so often our automatic reactivity gets in the way and we find ourselves, oh, yelling at kids when it's when it's not appropriate or sometimes the opposite, giving in to things where it won't be helpful to them. So mindfulness practices, by helping us to see our, our feelings arising in the body and our urges to react to those feelings arising by helping us to watch this happen, it gives us a moment to take a breath. It gives us a moment before reacting to consider what would be the wisest course of action. And in so doing, uh, we tend to become much more skillful, whether it's as a romantic partner, an employee or an employer, a parent or a child of a parent, whatever the relationship is, um, it goes better. Uh, when we when we uh, have this ability to reflect and take a breath. The other thing that mindfulness practices do is they help us to become less preoccupied with me. Um, not that you're preoccupied with me, but I'm preoccupied with me and you're preoccupied with you. And a great deal of what goes wrong in intimate relationships has to do with our worrying about um, you know, what this means about uh, what you think of me and uh, how I look and those kinds of considerations, uh, what everybody's thinking of me. And those kinds of things tend to settle down more when we do mindfulness practice. We tend to more look at the big picture and consider not just our own needs but other people's needs also. And that, that certainly helps relationships to go better. Okay, your last chapter is What's Next, The Promise of Mindfulness, and we've got a couple minutes for what's next. Well, you know, these uh, these practices are not only helpful for dealing with all sorts of everyday problems, things like anxiety, depression, relationship issues, the stress-related medical disorders, a topic that you were just talking about before, which is addictions and helping people to not feel like they have to go and have a drink because they develop the ability to tolerate feelings instead of medicating them, say, with alcohol or or other substances. But they also go beyond that into giving us a a really rich and deep appreciation for moment-to-moment life, really helping us to smell the roses. And in fact, they can shift our entire uh, view of ourselves and others. Mostly the shift becomes a shift away from worrying so much about me and mine into what we might call a more spiritual perspective of seeing the bigger picture, seeing the needs of the wider world, and um, and addressing them. In fact, ultimately, these practices help us to see how our whole sense of self is put together and allow us to have a different sense of who we are as part of the uh, more part of the wider world. And that's that's how they were originally used in their original Buddhist con- uh, context. And in addition to being helpful 
for all these everyday problems, they can help all of any of us who are involved on a, any kind of spiritual path or have any kind of uh, religious interest. They can help us to evolve uh, that way as well. well. The book is called The Mindfulness Solution. Thank you very much, Dr. Ronald Siegel, for being our if, guest if tonight. I, if, if, if I may just give a resource yes, for people, if that would be helpful. If people are interested in, we didn't have time in our segment to um, actually do the meditation practices, but there's a website that goes with the book, which is mindfulness-solution.com. So mindfulness-solution.com. And on that website, uh, people can access uh, recorded meditations there there's a download meditation tab and people can try the meditations themselves and get a first-hand taste of mindfulness practice and they're there all for free just to download put on your ipod or whatnot i think they might be a useful resource for listeners okay thank you very much for that resource and thank you for being our guest and next week everybody come back when our guest will be jim mergens who is the executive director of moderation management and uh, Walter Cavalieri, who is the Executive Director of the Canadian Harm Reduction Coalition. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.